Jesus, it is you we want to lift up. It's you who we want to glorify. I pray that as John the Baptist prays, we might become less and decrease so Jesus might increase and be fully magnified. And I pray that is our experience as we look at the Bible together, that Jesus is lifted high and we see him more clearly. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. Thank you to Sarah and the team leading us as we sing and praise to Jesus. I wonder if you've got a Bible there, either on a screen or a paper version. You'd open up to Hebrews chapter 12. If you'd like a Bible this morning, please do just put a hand up in the air and uh, uh, Hazel there will bring you one. Uh, and that's great. There we go, Hazel, a couple at the front. So just stick a hand in the air. Oh, and some at the back as well. Sorry, Hazel. And Hazel will bring you a Bible. It's Hebrews chapter 12, and you'll find this in the church's Bible on page 1,211. Page 1,211. While you're just finding that, uh, let me tell you about Esau. Do some of you know Esau? He's a character from yesteryear, way back at the beginning of the Bible. Well, Esau was a proven and tried hunter. In fact, in his extended family, his clan, which his father was the chieftain of, he was known as the one who would always bring back the food. If Esau went out into the fields, into the woods, you know that you're going to eat well that night. And he liked his reputation. He enjoyed being that kind of man and recognised in the community as that sort of provider for the whole extended family. And so when his father said to him one night, "Uh, tomorrow Esau, go out and hunt. We as a community, we haven't had meat for a good couple of weeks and we've got our lentils and we've got our vegetables, but actually we want something we can really get our teeth into. Sorry to the vegetarians, by the way. It's just part of the story, right? Well, Esau was delighted. The next morning, he's up at the crack of dawn, and out he goes to hunt, to provide. And he loved, he loved hunting, being out in the open and the adventure of it all. But he also loved the moment that he knew would come when he'd walk back into camp, and all those eager faces would light up with glee, and he'd be praised and thanked and given uh, applause for his great provision. But that was 11 hours ago. 11 hours Esau had been checking his traps. 11 hours Esau had been traipsing around some of his favourite spots. But every time he'd unleashed an arrow from the lee side of the hill, it had never ended in the satisfying thud of living flesh. And he'd given up. And as he was walking back, empty-handed, a failed provider, he began to wonder about his dad's motivation in sending him out in the first place. Has his dad actually set him up to fail? Did his dad know something that he didn't know about the weather patterns or the time of year, which mean game would not be plentiful? Did his dad really love him? And at the end of a hard, hungry day, with the looming shame and disappointment that was going to come when he walked into the group expecting so much from him, he could not see his father's love anymore. He griped and grumbled to himself. And then about a quarter of a mile off of camp, that lovely smell penetrated his senses. I mean, he was really hungry now, right? Someone was cooking. And to him, at that moment, Esau, it smelt like a real meat stew. Half an hour's time, he'd realise it was only the crude lentils they'd been eating for all this time. But in his hunger, oh my word, he started to salivate. 
And when he got to the edge of the camp, there was his cheeky, cocky younger, younger brother, wafting it under his nose and saying to him, hey, Esau, Esau, you know your father doesn't love you. Look at the hard day you've had. Why don't you trade your father's love for this single meal? Why don't you trade his, the inheritance and the blessing and the promise that should be yours? Because your father doesn't love you because you, you've had a hard day. And Esau gave up his father's love for a single meal. If you look at sentence 16 of Hebrews 12, would you do that? We're told here to not be like Esau. Do you see what it says? Sentence 16, see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. See to it that no one is like Esau. That when the going gets tough, when it is hard, when there seems to be a legitimate reason to doubt that God loves you, don't be like Esau, who becomes persuaded that his father no longer loves him and is happy to trade that father's love for a single meal. You see, Esau in hardship started to doubt God's love, that he could not see and trust his father when the going got tough, and so he surrendered that love for a single meal. See, right the way through our story that we call Hebrews, that we've been teaching for over a year, it's become crystal clear that life full stop, but following Jesus' life is not easy, is difficult. In fact, he's described it as a race that you need perseverance for, a marathon that, that is difficult to get to the end of. He says there's a risk back in chapter 12 in sentence 3 that will grow weary and lose heart. Just like Esau grew weary and lost heart in the difficulty of that empty hunting day. He even described it in sentence 12 that we get weak knees and feeble arms and just, just can't really keep going. And the risk is in that hardship, just like Esau, is we fail to see God rightly that we no longer see that God is a God of love. He's something else, but surely he doesn't love me if he's giving me this experience, allowing this problem to be in my life. So I wonder what it is for you, that hardship that you can look back on, that you're living in right now, that's just round the corner. Maybe you know the horror of that diagnosis and cancer comes screaming into your life and robs from you those years you expected so much from, that you're going to serve Jesus because you're now retired, that you're going to give to your family, and cancer just comes in and, and tears it away. Who is God in the midst of that hardship? Where is your heart? Don't be like Esau and doubt God's love. Or, or maybe you know the beautiful ceremony of being married with all the rose petals and delight and promises and expectations, and now X number of years, months, years in, you start to think it's just grit and grind and hard, and the decades in front of you just look so bleak, and you think, God, who are you right now? Have I got a father who loves me, who's giving me this marriage? Or what about parenting? It can't be undone, can it? And you start to think, how did we end up here with this self-bred brood of vipers that seem to be nesting in my home? Not speaking from experience. They're more like savage wolves, ours. But yeah. 
But it's serious, isn't it? And you think, God, who are you in this moment, in this hardship? What kind of God are you? See, I think there's a risk in those moments. This is the Esau risk. This is why we're told not to be like Esau, who in hardship doubted that his father still loved him and then happily traded that relationship with his father for a single cheap meal because hardship robbed his heart of a certainty that his father loved him. That's the risk. Hardship robs our heart of the belief that God still loves us. And the risk is we begin to think, well, our suffering and our challenges and our hardship are meaningless. That actually they're proof that God does not exist. Or we look at our hardship and our trials. Maybe it's chronic illness that has robbed you of, of, of years of doing what you wanted to do. Maybe it's the dark tentacles of depression that come in. Maybe you desire in your heart children so much and you wonder why yet another round of IVF has not borne fruit. And that hardship robs your heart of a certainty that God loves you. Maybe he doesn't exist, and this is all meaningless. Maybe actually he is cruel, and this hardship is punishment. And he is a cruel God, and it's a denial of his kindness. Or maybe you look at hardship, and what your heart starts to say is it's just proof that God is not interested in you. He's a neglectful God. He's got an eyes on those people who are prospering over there, but he just hasn't got time to take into account your life. Who is God, according to your heart, in hardship? Are you like Esau, who at the end of a hard period has become persuaded that God doesn't love him, his father doesn't love him, and trades it for a cheap meal? Well, right the way through the preamble to where we've got to this image of Esau, we're told very clearly who God is in our hardship. Would you have a look at it with me? Uh, Look at chapter 12, sentence 5 and 6. Chapter 12, sentence 5 and 6. Who is God in hardship? This is what it says. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Who is God when the going gets hard? He's still a God who loves you and you are still his child and he loves you too much not to discipline you and shape you and mould you into the person he longs for you to be. Hardship is not a denial that God exists. It's not a denial of his kindness, of if he is punishing you. It's not a denial of his interest and he's neglecting you. Far, far from it. He is a God who loves you. And in his love, he is using these things to shape you, discipline you, form you into the person that he wants you to be. It's purposeful father love. Not convinced yet? Have a look at sentence seven. Would you have a look at sentence seven? Endure hardship. Now you could exchange hardship for cancer. Difficult marriage. (coughs) Depression. A broken foot. Right? Endure hardship as discipline. Not punishment. Not neglect. Endure hardship as discipline. God is is treating you as his child. He's still a God who loves you. He's still a God who cares for you. And however he is behind your suffering, and we could lose ourselves in that rabbit warren all day long, couldn't we? 
Did he give it? Did he ordain it? Did he allow it? Did he permit it? But somehow he's sovereign behind it. He is. And he's loving like a father, using it to shape you, to mould you, to discipline you. Are you persuaded yet? Have a look. Because I wasn't yet. huh? So there's a third time. Have a look. Have a look at sentence 10, would you? Sentence 10. They, talking about human fathers, human fathers, they discipline us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Do you see that? That God disciplines us for, for what? For his own enjoyment? For his cruelty? Because he's neglectful? No, he disciplines us for our good because he's a loving, caring father. Do not be like Esau. See, Esau, when it was hard, he assumed it meant his father didn't love him and therefore exchanged that love for a single meal. Do not see to it, none of us are like Esau, whom our heart in hardness begins to see God as not loving. Instead, in the hardness of marriage, of parenting, of singleness, of infertility, of old age, of dementia, of cancer, of redundancy, that in the midst of this hardship, allow your heart to see that he's still your loving father and he is disciplining you and shaping you and making you into the person he wants you to be. Suffering is not a denial of God's existence. Suffering is not a denial of God's kindness. Suffering is not a denial of God's interest in your life. It is actually the loving hand of a loving father working his purposes out for you, disciplining you and shaping you and making you into who he wants you to be. Do not be like Esau. Can I give you a brain break and uh, tell you a little story, an illustration? Okay, I hope it's not too flippant, but, but come with me. In every, every illustration, particularly when you're talking about the emotive and, and painful things that we're talking about this morning, any illustration is going to be deficient. So, so take it as it's meant to be given. Don't drive a juggernaut through the problems with it, okay? Yeah? Can you imagine yourself as a seven-year-old? Yeah? A little while back for some of you. Can you remember that? Yeah? And there you are walking down the street, seven years old, in the sheer innocence of joy that only seven-year-olds can have, where the biggest worry in your life is whether you won the football game at lunchtime with the raggedy old tennis ball or not, and you're strolling home in the sunshine. You could not be happier. And then all of a sudden, you feel some big hands in your back, and there's a mighty shove, and you're propelled forward into the dirt. You go flying face first. Your knees rip up. That horrible gravel burn across your hands. You smack your head on the curb of the road. Now, what's the first thing you do there? Why? Why? Why have I been pushed over? Why now? Why in the dirt? Why me? That's our reaction, isn't it, to hardship? Why? Imagine if we reframe the question. Why is important, but imagine if we reframed it to who. Who just pushed me? And as you look over your shoulder, you see behind you the school bully. Cruel glitters in their eyes and their their minions celebrating this small victory. Well, if the who is the school bully, the why questions start to be answered in one way, don't they? But imagine you look over your shoulder and who you see is your father who you know 
loves you and cares for you and is compassionate to you and has infinite evidence of their unchanging, unfailing love for you. And to your mind as a little seven-year-old, they're also the wisest person who has ever lived and so powerful no one could ever overcome their strength. Now, you still don't know why you've been pushed over, but you start to realise the reasons must be loving, must be wise, and must be sovereign. That your father is too wise to wish you harm, too wise to make a mistake, too loving to wish you harm, and too powerful not to achieve his purposes. You don't know why he has done it, but you do know they are loving, wise, and sovereign reasons behind it. Now, you can change the analogy. Maybe it wasn't your father who pushed you. Maybe it was the school bully who pushed you. But your father's standing close enough to intervene and chooses not to. But still, his reasons must be loving and wise and sovereign. Maybe from his greater height, he's seen the motorbike screeching around the corner and has saved you from a far greater danger that you know nothing about. Now, friends, what we're learning here and what the consistent story of God in the Bible is is when it comes to the hardships of life, it is not a denial of God's existence. It's not a denial of his kindness, as if he is a cruel God. It's not a denial of his interest, as if he is neglecting you. It is the sovereign hand of a loving father, wise enough to use that to shape and form you into the person he wants you to be. The question is, what happens to our heart in that moment? Like Esau in hardship, does our heart shrink and deny that our Father loves us, to the point where we're ready to trade in that love for the quickest satisfaction that is available? Or does our heart swell and allow us to endure that hardship as discipline, as a child obedient to their Father? I wonder which one it is for you. I wonder which one it is for me in the midst of that. What I want to do in our last few minutes together, five or seven minutes or so that we've got, is actually look at our allocated passage today. Because what what we have is the answer to the question is, how do we respond to hardship and hurt as if a loving fatherly discipline is behind it? That's what we're answered here. How do we make sure our heart is not like Esau's heart, shrinking and denying who God is when the day is hard, How do we make sure, in fact, in hardship, our heart sees God as a loving father disciplining us, too wise to make a mistake, too loving to wish us harm, too sovereign not to achieve his promises? What is it we can do to be good children under that father? Let me read the passage, uh, and then there's two things we'll pull out of it. It's sentences 14 to 17. This is about as important as irrelevant as it comes. Let me read it to you. Sentence 14 of of, uh, Hebrews 12. It says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Two things of how we respond. So God, we see God as this loving father in our hardship. The first, in sentences 14 to 15, is to live at peace with the people that you blame for your hardship. 
to find a way to live at peace with the people you blame for your hardship, refusing to allow bitterness to ruin you. Have a look again at sentences 14 and 15. It says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Those you blame make every effort to find a way to live at peace with them. Now, you may blame someone who it's legitimate to blame. The divorce was his fault. And that could be totally true. But if blame defines that relationship, blame quickly becomes bitterness. And it says here, it says here that that bitter root, sentence 15, grows up to cause trouble and defile many. That when there's a relationship that is full of bitterness, it is like a root which branches grow into every other relationship and situation that you find yourself in. If this relationship is blame-defined and you, you like aggressively cultivate that blame, what happens is when you're with your friends, all you can talk about is this relationship in an angry, negative kind of way. And, and that bitterness grows in and starts to disrupt that other relationship. Now, maybe you don't blame someone who it's legitimate to blame. It may be you blame someone because they're just an easy target. That's another thing we do all the time, isn't it? Blame society, you know. It's the powers that be in their corner office that are the reason I've been made redundant. We just blame someone who's an easy target. But again, you see, if we don't find the way to make peace in that relationship, that blame becomes a bitter root that then infiltrates every other relationship. I was talking to someone the other day who recently made redundant, well, actually about eight, nine months ago made redundant, and was having a, a job interview, and they rang me to say they were really disappointed, they'd not been offered the job, and we kind of had a little feedback session on, on their interview technique, and it transpired that they'd basically spent half the interview degrading and abusing their previous boss, who had fired them. Well, how do you expect to get a new job if that's your approach? But it's a classic example of this. They're blaming their boss, their past boss. I don't know, rightly or wrongly, I have no idea. But they're blaming that boss, and that becomes a bit of root that has then infiltrated every relationship. That's exactly what it says here. It grows up to cause trouble and defile many. One of the most important blame relationships to work on is when you blame yourself. That the hardship you're in, you blame yourself for. Either legitimately, it was you who committed adultery. It was you who, at work, didn't work in such a way that they could keep you on. Maybe legitimate self-blame. Often, it's not. We just blame ourselves for stuff. And yet, if we don't find a way to live at peace, to make every effort to live at peace with ourselves, it becomes a bitter root that ruins everything and infiltrates every other, defiles and makes trouble is the word here. And they're good words, aren't they, if you've lived that experience? So what's the solution, right? If the risk, the problem, is this blame and bitterness, what's the solution? It's found in that little phrase at the beginning of sentence 15. Would you look down at it? It says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. That's the solution, the grace of God. What it means by that is remember how God treated you when you were to blame that when it was your fault that you turned away from God, when it was your sin, your rebelliousness, your decisions that ignored God, when you were God's enemies because of your choice, remember how he treated you. With blame? No. With grace. 
God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a good acronym for grace, isn't it? God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, G-R-A-C-E. He didn't blame you. He didn't punish you. He didn't condemn you. He approached you with grace and through his son made a way that all your punishment could be taken by another so you're free of it. And that's the solution. He says, don't fall short of God's grace. Remind yourself of how you've been treated by God and find a way to begin treating yourself and others who you blame in that kind of way. Whether it's legitimate you blame them, whether you're just um, transferring blame onto an innocent party because it's an easy way to do it, whether you're blaming yourself, actually find a way to be gracious and cut that root off, that bitter root off, before it ruins your life and causes trouble everywhere. Let's have a look at the second one. There's only the two. The second one is in sentence 16 to 17. Remember, it's how do we respond to hardship and hurt in such a way that our hearts still see God as a loving father? Not like Esau, whose hardship shrunk his heart until he doubted his father's love for him and traded his love for a single meal. We don't want to be like Esau. We want to be like children under a loving father who see hardship as discipline and love and care and compassion from that father towards us. So the first was about relationships. The second is about living with a single-minded pursuit of God, refusing to exchange God for single-meal satisfactions, of which sexual satisfaction is the prime example he has here. A single-minded pursuit of God that refuses to exchange God's love for a single-meal satisfaction like Esau did. And his main example of how we do that is through sex. Let me read sentences 16 to 17. See what you make of this. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. See, the risk, the Esau risk is that when life is hard, you doubt that your father loves you, you doubt that the father loves you, and therefore you're ready to trade that minuscule amount of love that you perceive God has for you, you're ready to trade that for any quick single meal satisfaction that is offered. That's, that's what Esau did. He so doubted his father's love that this idea of inheriting stuff from his father, he thought, well, that's going to be like this big, less than a single meal to eat now. So he chose the single meal because his perception of his father's love had shrunk so massively. That's the risk of hardship. After chronic illness for many years, after your life is wrecked by someone else's decision, after your marriage has moved out of the promised honeymoon period of brightness and rose petals into the graft and, and grit of making it work, after enough years of that, your perception of God's love has shrunk so much that almost anything is worth trading for it. Almost anything gives you more than that perception of God loves gives you. Now, in Esau's case, it was a hot meal at the end of a, a hungry day. The case study example that he gives us is sex. See to it that no one is sexually immoral. He's saying, actually, one of the things in our society, in the makeup of human beings, that gives us a deep sense of satisfaction and belonging is having sex with someone. And so that's the single meal trade that we, we make. 
to have sex outside of the predetermined relationship of marriage where God says it flourishes and is right. It's not because God is a killjoy that he says sex is for that. It's because outside of that, it's a cheap imitation of what God's love is. Now, for men, predominantly, that manifests in physical attraction and physical sex, in watching pornography and going on the internet to watch pornos in the physical flirting that you might do at work, which you know is there to titillate you and excite you, or through adultery. It's all about giving to another what only belongs to your partner, physically. And for men, the challenge is predominantly physical. It's because we've lost sight of how much God loves us. It's shrunk because of hardship. Our, our, love, our sense of God's love for us is so shrunk because of the hard life we're in. We don't see him as a loving father disciplining us. We think he's cruel or unkind or neglectful. Our perception of his love shrinks so much that actually this little bit of tintillation here, this watching of this porno, this whatever, we go, yeah, 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 it's, it's worth the single meal swap. For women, this sexual immorality thing, and these are stereotypes, there's overlap, but, but for women it's more likely to be emotional, to be emotional. An emotional attachment with someone who is not your partner, which gives you that, that sense of, of love, of belonging, of, of someone actually caring for me. And so that comes in, in an emotional attachment to someone in the workplace that is not appropriate. An emotional attachment to a pastor. An emotional attachment to your next door neighbour. Giving to someone else what only rightly belongs to your partner emotionally. Now, it's not sexual immorality as it's called here in the Bible rather religiously is not the only example of this single meal swap but it's the one that he highlights here isn't it let me see if I can summarize this and then I want to land it with just a couple of questions as we sort of bring this into land the big big instruction here is see to it that no one is like Ezra uh, Ezra that no one is like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance that Esau went through a hard period of life and somehow his heart became convinced that his father didn't love him, that that hardship was proof that his father didn't love him. And so when the opportunity came to trade that father's love, which he now perceived as tiny, for a quick, satisfying meal, he happily made that swap. We're being told, don't be like Esau. When that inevitable hard times come, Don't allow your heart to tell you the lie that God doesn't love you. In fact, discipline your heart to constantly tell you, I have a loving father, too compassionate to wish me harm, too wise to make a mistake, and too sovereign not to achieve his purposes. And this is his kind and loving discipline, as horrendous as it feels to me right now at this moment. And the two ways we discipline our heart to do that, the first is about looking at the blame relationships we have and finding a way to live at peace in those relationships so that blame doesn't become bitterness and infiltrate every aspect of our lives. The second is to live in a pursuit of God and seeing him so much as our Father who loves us that we are not tempted to trade that love for the cheap imitation of sex. So here are my questions. Where is your heart in hardship? What is your heart telling you about God right now 
in the difficult thing you're in. Number two, what is the single meal satisfaction you are most tempted by? What is the thing that looks to you better than God's love and you're tempted to trade? Three, what blame and bitterness are taking root in your life and starting to ruin it? What relationship do you have with yourself, with someone else, with someone who's dead, potentially? Where you blame them, maybe legitimately, and that blame is becoming bitterness, and it's starting to infiltrate all sorts of relationships that you have. Where are those that you need to sever? And what is the this week action you can take to persuade your heart more that you have a father who loves you? What could you do to persuade your heart more that you have a father who loves you? I'm going to pray for us. And then Sarah's going to lead us in a song or two uh, to finish. And I do urge you to use the song to allow God just to drive home what he's saying to you. I'm also going to ask, because I've asked them before, so I hope they're all right with this, uh, Margaret and Liz, would you please be available if anyone would like someone to pray? Margaret and Liz, they are beautiful, wonderful people who have seen all of life with the gentlest of souls and the clearest of prayers. So if you'd like someone to pray for you, then Margaret and Liz will just be around here and would absolutely love uh, to do that. Um, uh, I'm also going to ask, Sandra is one of our deacons, uh, leaders of the church. So Sandra and Matt, would you also be available? Maybe if you could just stand yourselves on this side. And maybe together as a couple, could you pray for people? So, so Matt and Sandra will be here as a couple if you want someone just to pray for you. And uh, the lovely Margaret and Liz will be over here as individuals. And you may want them to pray that God would reach into the hard situation you're in and bring healing and wholeness. And he is a God who intervenes like that. He's wonderful. He's wonderful. But you also might want someone just to pray for your heart and where, you, where it's located in the hardness. Is your heart in hardness expanding with a sense of God's love for you? Or is it shrinking? Where's your heart in hardness? And they can pray for your heart in that. So Matt and Sandra over here and uh, Margaret and Liz just on this side. Sarah, would you come and get set up and let me pray for us? Father God, I thank you that you are a God who loves us. I thank you that hardship and suffering and illness and grief, these are not evidences that you are cruel. They are not evidences that you have neglected us or abandoned us. Far, far, far from it. That in the midst of these most difficult things that every life contains, that actually we can be sure that we have a loving Father who is too compassionate towards us to wish us harm, is too wise to have made a mistake about how he should work in our life, and is too sovereign not to achieve his planned purposes. And therefore, even the worst and most horrific of experiences, the cancer that ravages, the chronic illness that steals so much, the wayward child that destroys our heart, the crumbled marriage and the pain that comes with that, the dementia or depression that as tentacles grips and squeezes us, the stress and strain and anxiety of making ends meet and wondering what the future holds. 
that all of these come under your sovereign, loving, wise lead, that you are a father and you love us too much not to discipline your children. Help our hearts, Lord. Help our hearts in hardship to see your love and help us to obey your call to follow you even when the going is at its most toughest. And so I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll be led by Sarah. She'll ask us to stand, I'm sure. And do come and be prayed for by these wonderful people.